Hello, this is Tom Pacello, the ROI guy, and welcome to the Evolvers podcast. My guest today is Todd Capone. He is the author of the award-winning and international bestseller, The Transparency Sale. And I've got that book in front of me right now. Todd, thank you so much for sending me a copy. Todd is, go, yeah. thank you. Todd's a great speaker. He's principal at uh, Sales Melon. I assume that the melon is a reference to the brain. Is that true? That is true, yeah. All right. Uh, as well, he's the managing director of Chicago's Venture Scale, uh, which is a growth accelerator for early stage venture backed B2B tech companies. Uh, previously, he served as the CRO of Power Reviews. And he built that company uh, from the ground up into one of Chicago's fastest growing tech companies. So he's part of that executive team as a key member. And he's also held sales leadership roles with three other tech companies, including Exact Target, where he helped drive the organization to a successful IPO and a $2.7 billion exit through the acquisition of Exact Target by Salesforce.com. Welcome, Todd. Well, thanks for having me, Tom. Awesome. So before we get into the book and some of the subject matter I want to talk to you about today, I always love origin stories. And how did you get your start in sales? Well, I mean, to take you way back, um, my dad was in sales forever. Um, and it was back at a time where everybody that got into sales, or, you know, got a job back then seemed to work at the same company forever. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he worked selling uh, corrugated moving boxes and then boxes for like cereal boxes and that kind of thing for 40 years. Um, so, you know, the Purinas, the, um, you know, all of those organizations were his customers and he'd come home with a smile on his face, had great relationship and uh, great relationships. And it always inspired me. And, um, you know, I, I went to college to be a marketer and quickly realized that I didn't love that and sales was going to be my passion. And so my first sales job officially was selling uh, newspaper advertising for the Indiana University, uh, their Indiana Daily Student newspaper. And, uh, and that's where I got rolling. That's a great spot to cut your teeth. So uh, yeah. my dad as well was a seller uh, for over 30 years, very similar story uh, for a company in uh, Soho, Manhattan, New York. And it was a paper company, just like the office, just about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he sold trainloads of paper to most of the major magazines and Columbia House Records when they did the um, the home mailings, uh, you know, when you would uh, go and uh, kind of order your um, your records from online. Uh, he did all of the paper to, gosh, 120 million households in the country. So, uh, so was your garage was your garage filled with paper all the time? Because mine was always filled with moving boxes. It was, and it had rolls of paper. <laughs> so I always drew continuously. So that was a big inspiration too to my creativity. And the other thing was is we had the best books. And you know, this is pre-internet. This is back in ancient times for those millennials listening. And you know, we had not one encyclopedia, which was kind of the secret to knowledge back in that day, but we had, gosh, four different complete sets of encyclopedias, every great picture book from National Geographic and everything you could imagine. And so I just sucked it all up from a That's knowledge awesome. perspective. So, so yeah, very, um, very inspired by my dad as well in the sales business, Todd. So 
let's get into the topic at hand. The Transparency Sale is your book, and I absolutely found it fascinating. Um, Can you share the inspiration for the book? So how did you come up with the idea for the Transparency Sale? Yeah, so, you know, as the Chief Revenue Officer of Chicago's Power Reviews, um, if you don't know who they are, Power Reviews helps retailers and brands collect and display ratings and reviews on their websites, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're buying a pair of shoes on Crocs or at Vineyard Vines, you're looking at a sweater and you look and see the reviews below it or next to it, Power Reviews was the engine that helped those retailers collect and display those reviews. So we, um, I, I've always been a nerd for behavioral science and sales methodology, which is kind of a weird combo. But um, we, we uh, worked with Northwestern University here in Chicago on a research study around how consumers interact and, and what do they look like? Or what do they do when a website is acting as the salesperson, you know, essentially like an e-commerce retail site. Mm-hmm. And so what they found literally changed my life. I quit my job and I wrote a book. Like I'm sure that happens to you all the time with research studies. But um, for me, the research came back and said, first of all, 96% of us look at reviews now, right? So uh, before we buy anything of medium to high consideration, meaning if we're buying a pack of gum, we're probably not looking at reviews first, but you're looking at anything of substance that you haven't bought before, you're probably looking at reviews. So no Mm -hmm. surprise there. But the thing that knocked my socks off was, first of all, that 82% of us look for the negative reviews first. Hmm. So when we're looking at a product, we skip the fives and we go to the ones, twos, threes, and fours. And when a review score on a product, when it's average, and this is across all categories, some categories skew a little different. When a review score is between a four, two and a four, five, those products actually sell at a higher rate than products that have any other score, including a five. So in other words, a four, two sells better than a five. Mm -hmm. So I looked at this and just marinated on it and realized, wait, that's when a website is acting as the salesperson, but I've got a whole team. I had 61 people in my revenue organization, Power Reviews, and I'm like, I've been teaching them to sell as though we're perfect forever. And basically leave it up to the buyers to figure out how we're not, right? And maybe, if we're wired to go after the negative first and that positioning our products as imperfect actually would sell better, I wonder if that would work. And so I went out and I tried it and I tried it with reps, but actually in one situation, I got a kind of happenstance that I ended up having to do a pitch for a team at a apparel manufacturer in New York that I wasn't expecting. I thought we were just having coffee. Mm-hmm. And when I did it, when I led with flaws and basically positioned our solutions as imperfect, like magic happened. I, I had one customer literally pull out his budget and show me line items as to what he had and asked me if I could hit it. And I'd, I'd never had anybody do it. And it literally happened the first time I tried it. And I was like, all right, there's something here. I, I, I think that maybe I'm onto something. And then I really dove into the behavioral science, found a treasure trove of things that I, I really genuinely thought could not only help sellers, but help buyers, help the perception of the sales community. And uh, that's what really led me on the journey to write the book. Yeah, and I, I think you're so right about that. I mean, as sellers, we're trained to, you know, be proud of what it is that we're selling, talk about all the great things it can do. I know in a lot of sales calls, it's easy to say, yes, we can do that. Yes, we've got that. Yes, we're perfect there. And what you're saying is that actually can work against you 
and is perceived as non-genuine, non-authentic, and that you should instead, quote unquote, lead with your flaws. So explain to me how the heck to do that, because it yeah. seems to make sense. I mean, going through that logic, it's like, okay, that, that seems to make sense. And from my own personal experience, I know that that has been true. How do you lead with your flaws and do so successfully without just handing the business to your competition? Because it's yeah. kind of scary. Yeah, I mean, the first, uh, I'll start you with a word and it comes from a supermodel. You probably didn't expect that, but Tyra <laughs> Banks coined the term flossum, uh, which is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. And the reason I say that is that that four, two to four, five is important. I'm not advocating that anybody go to their next sales engagement and go, Hey, this is why we suck. Like that's yeah, we're a two. Yeah. <laughs> right. That, that this is, but I mean, there's a couple of things to think in to keep in mind. Number one, uh, there was a study that the CEB, which is now Gartner did in 2017 mm -hmm. that looked at how buyers in a consensus sale spend their time. And what they found is that 61% of their time, uh, in a buying cycle was not doing, you know, talking to you, talking to your competitors or talking to their internal buying groups. 61% of the time was spent basically back channeling you and trying to research the things that they don't get from you and your competitors mm -hmm. and their internal buying team. So they're checking references and they're back channeling you to their buddies and peers and organizations and, you know, maybe talking to analysts and looking at their magic quadrants. Yep, and if you're in crowd. tech, yep. you know, mm -hmm. if you're in tech, they're on g2.com or trustradius.com. They're doing a search and saying, all right, what would it, uh, what is it like to work with? And they put in your company and they, they see stuff, right? And in many cases, when you do that search, Glassdoor will come up as the first result with a rating snippet and reviews from current and former employees about what it's like to work in your company, right? Mm -hmm. If you don't think buyers are doing that, you're mistaken. That's where that 61% of time is spent. So when you think about like, how do you do it? I mean, the, the first piece of homework is to go empathize with a buyer and act like them and go do the searches and the research and find out what they're going to find when they look, <laughs> because it's all out there, right? I mean, the brain science tells us that embracing your flaws sells better than perfection, but the proliferation of reviews and feedback and content everywhere means you got to do it anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, that's a place to start and, and maybe it would help here. Why don't I give you a, a B to C example first, and then maybe we can talk about a B to B example too. That'd be great. That, uh, that the B to C example that I think will, will make sense to everybody is Ikea, <laughs> right? Like Ikea is the number one furniture retailer in the world for 10 straight years. And if you've been to one, which probably all of your listeners have, you probably think to yourself like, how on earth? Um, you know, you, you walk in, it's a nightmare to find anything. When you find something, there's no salesperson there to help you. Mm -hmm. uh, you got to write down the code because you are getting the opportunity to go to the warehouse yourself and unpack the boxes that are like a ton, like they weigh a ton onto mm -hmm. a cart that for some reason doesn't have brakes, which seems like a design oversight. You roll it into the parking lot. You jam it into your car, Tetris style. You drive home with an injur injury or two. And then you think, you know what, hopefully I just left all the fun at the store, but no, the box contains 150 parts and instructions that have no yep. words in them. And you F-bomb your way through it. And when you're done, you're like, oh, this bedroom set looks great. We should have bought the end tables. Let's go back, right? Mm -hmm. it, it doesn't make sense, but it does in the case that 
IKEA basically says, listen, um, we're not going to be good at those things. And if you mm -hmm. want those things, we will gladly um, send you to Macy's or Room and Board or Crate and Barrel, whoever does the hands-on delivery that is assembled and they'll feng shui your room and all that. We're not going to be good at those things. So we can be great at giving you modern Scandinavian design furniture that you didn't pay a whole lot for. Mm -hmm. And I think in all of our organizations, there's an opportunity to think, all right, what are we giving up to be great at our core? <laughs> and the companies that do that, when you just look across the spectrum, the companies that embrace their core and say, this is our expertise and trying to be perfect and all things to all people is not only impossible, um, but it, you know, it, it, the buyers in our brains are wired to think that it's not possible anyway. Yep. So it, it's a matter of, you know, do the homework, but just think about like, what is our core? What are we great at? And then what are those things we're not going to be good at? And you can message that around that, that flossom concept and lead with it. And you end up disarming that, that uh, resistance to influence that our brain has and your sales cycles speed up, your win rates go up. It, it, the results are magic. Yeah. So you're actually saying, you know, here, have a slide or perhaps make sure it's coming across cl clearly. Here is exactly what we're good at. And here are the things that if you're valuing really high, maybe you should look elsewhere. Yeah. And it's, it's not only that, but if there's things that are out there about you, um, I would always advise leading with it, the elephant mm -hmm. in the room. So let's say you're coming in to give a presentation, but you know, your technology, your product failed two years ago and you got sued and like it's on the all over the web or whatever it is. Yep. Um, I, I just an advocate for address the elephant in the room. Like, hey, listen, as you do your homework, you're likely to see this, this story. Yeah. And it was like, like Equifax is a great example yes. out of Atlanta, right? They're a customer of ours, love them as a company. Uh, you're suggesting, you know, lead with the security issue that occurred yeah. and say, look, as a result of that, you better believe that we have fixed every hole and then some 10 times over. Yeah, exactly. It's, uh, you know, embrace the things that they're going to find. And that remember that 61% stat, that 61% is not a foregone conclusion. What ends up happening is that when you lead with that information, you're basically doing the homework for the buyer. Mm -hmm. They're still going to do a little. And when they find that it matches exactly what you've said, their, um, their burden that they feel to, to really vet that out goes down and that 61% shrinks. And as a result, your sales cycle shrink uh, in terms of their, their length and you know, you're building trust right through the goal line and you're, you've got a lot more rope post sale for when things inevitably go wrong too. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's really a combination of all those things that it's not only what can't you do, but what are they gonna find? Embrace that, but don't make it the, don't make it your brand just lead with it. Got it. So when you, your 61 people that you had at Power Reviews, it worked for you. How did you, did you instantiate this program across the organization? Kind of how did you illuminate the approach and make sure that everyone was kind of playing off the same hymnal? Yeah. I mean, uh, well, number one is you've got to have a good relationship with marketing. Like, you know, mm -hmm. we, we talk so much about the, the, you know, sales and marketing alignment. This is one of those times where you don't want to leave it up to your salespeople to just go find something and go blast it. Yep. Um, so it was just a, a matter of um, honing that messaging with the help of marketing. And one of marketing's big priorities then became to constantly have a feel for what the market was saying about us. Um, so that we could adjust that messaging. But just like anything else, like you've got a new product coming out, 
product marketing creates the messaging, you work with sales enablement and make sure that your sales reps are taking the right approach. I and mean, that's, that's essentially what we did is, you know, marketing would help with sales and we'd make sure that we'd have that language down and then it would, uh, our sales enablement team would help to ensure that everybody was consistently delivering the message with their own flavor on it. Um, so that we weren't getting ourselves in trouble and not every rep was comfortable with it. It took a mm -hmm. while, but the ones that were, uh, you know, not only did better, but their, their confidence, uh, you know, came through in their ability to build trust. And I mean, when you lead with a flaw, I mean, that just shows that you've got confidence in your solution yeah, too. Absolutely. And confidence is contagious. When a customer senses it, they in turn become a little bit more confident too. And, th and that's really what you're looking for. Awesome. Or should I say flossom? Flossom, there you go. <laughs> so uh, I'm a huge fan, as you know, from uh, my book of uh, decision neuroscience, mm -hmm. uh, as are you. And um, the both of us wrote about in the book that there are three different buy buttons in the brain that can help you to sell better. Um, tell us from a, a neuroscience perspective, you know, why the Northwestern study kind of came up with what they did. So what's going on in the brain that kind of amplifies these uh, or instantiates these findings. Well, yeah, I mean, I think you know, we talked that there's the, the three things, but there's actually, there's another um, study. And so one of the things that I do, uh, which may sound kind of crazy, but I, I actually, I don't read books very often mm -hmm. um, because I like to come to my own conclusions. And so I subscribe to a ton of like neuroscience journals and every morning when I get up, I'm, I'm in one of them and just trying to learn a little bit more about this stuff. And then I, I come to my own conclusions and then I read books and match them up because some people's take, like, take them another level, which is awesome. Um, one of the things that I've more recently discovered is this whole thing around, and I call it my six Fs of how we as human beings make decisions. Um, but there, there's basically six buttons that uh, we use in some form or fashion to, to make a decision. Uh, the first thing, the first F is um, feedback. Like we buy things, we invest in things because we basically want to be recognized, get status, be validated, get recognized for the things that we buy. Like, you know, my, my neighbor, um, you know, bought a Corvette and he's in his mid forties. And, you know, he used logic on me to tell me about how he needed better acceleration to get on the expressway and that they had a great APR on the car. But like, that's <laughs> not why he bought a Corvette with an orange racing stripe. Yeah, exactly. Right? And so, I mean, it's like the part of it is the, that feedback, that recognition. Um, the, the second one is, is forecast. And this is really an important one around transparency too, but we are wired to try to predict what our experience is going to be like. We're wired to, when we make a purchase, we want to at least understand what best case and worst case is, which is why we look at the negative reviews first and why uh, we're drawn to products that have negative reviews on them in some form, because if it's only 5.0 speak, that's when we go do more homework and oftentimes we don't come back. Mm -hmm. um, the other ones are a little less attributable to this, but I, they're probably worth sharing. Um, the, the third one is freedom. Like we're not gonna buy anything that takes away our autonomy, our control. Um, it, we will buy things that give us more resources to, you know, to be able to maintain that control. Um, the fourth one is family, uh, meaning connection, relatedness, uh, we want to be a part of something. It's mm -hmm. kind of that tribal element. Tribe, yep. Right. So, you know, we'll buy things that, you know, all our buddies are buying. Uh, the fifth one is function, which is um, purpose, meaning. Uh, we will often buy things if it touches on that 
like that good feeling that we're actually making a difference. And then the, the sixth F is fairness, which is, is the juice worth the squeeze? Is the, the output of my dollars, my time, my resources worth the rewards that I'm going to get back, which are in the form of those other five, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's a balance of all of those things. And, and so part of why reviews work is it's not only all of those pieces that our brain is trying to satisfy all of them, and, but you know, honing in specifically on forecast and that ability to predict, that's why we're doing the research. And that's why when we lead with flaws, we help the buying brain feel more comfortable around our forecast. And as a result, the sales cycles speed up. Absolutely. So how do you think, you know, there's a kind of, uh, as we're recording this crisis and then ultimately hangover and uncertainty that we're going through at this point in time, I would think that trust in particular uh, and the, the ability to connect with trust and empathy, the middle part of the buying brain is going to be really important through this period, right? As people are risk averse, uh, as they're afraid to make a mistake, as they're looking for some certainty in their lives, uh, I do think there's a great opportunity if you're able to connect with that middle part of the brain to connect with trust coming up that the transparency sale will actually be amplified and the uh, efficacy of it will be amplified with the buyer. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I actually look at it another way. Um, like one of the things that we're all dealing with right now is there's basically three things that as human beings, we're all doing, right? Like number one, if you're faced with a personal recession or personal uncertainty, first thing you do is you remove your discretionary spending, right? You stop mm -hmm. with, you know, no more personal trainer and the, that couch that we'd like to buy is going to wait. Um, we look at our essentials and go, all right, how do we make sure we've got enough? And how do we extend our runway on those in terms of, um, getting the price down on them. And then the third one is to reduce our risk. And so we're trying to reduce our risk against uh, what our brain has already conceived as worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. And so if, if it's those three things, um, you know, first of all, I've just, I've been advising clients that if your messaging was developed during an up market, throw it out, start over. Yeah. You've got to just redo it and it might come out close, but it's got to hone in on those three things. Mm -hmm. You know, revenue growth right now is actually a nice to have. If that's mm -hmm. part of your message, I would actually get rid of it. I agree. Focus on those others. I just but, wrote an article about that in terms of the refocusing on the value map. Keep going. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, let, let's think about that risk part and the extending runways on your essentials. I, right now, if, if I'm a um, potential buyer, right? I'm somebody who, first of all, was not in my current role 12 years ago during the last downturn. And number two, there's a chance I wasn't even in the workforce uh, 12 years ago. Like lots of our buyers are, you know, in their 20s and their early 30s. They weren't. Mm -hmm. they were, they, so we're all reinventing the wheel. And so I think that, uh, you know, first of all, we've got to be givers and helping out these potential buyers and helping to educate them and get them outside of their bubble because they're stressed out trying to think about, all right, what do I focus on? Mm -hmm. But then number two is we have got to make the buying journey easy for those buyers because even if there's tremendous value in what you're selling, if you're making it hard in terms of like extra steps in the sales cycle or one-way terms in the contract or the implementation looks like this is going to be a freaking nightmare, mm -hmm. you know, you're going to move to the bottom of the priority list. But part of that is also, you know, removing homework from the buying journey by helping them predict what their experience is going to be like. If all you do is come at them with five-star speak and like, we're perfect, you're actually driving them to do more homework and 
wow, I mean, they, they lose their enthusiasm pretty quickly. And yeah, because they know there's out. flaws there, right? No one exactly. is perfect. And so you're digging and looking at them. I always relate it back to, you know, that date when someone's sitting across from you and, you know, they're speaking perfectly, they're looking perfectly, totally quaff, totally. And you're like, okay, what's, what's wrong with this person? Where, where are the flaws, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I was actually, it's funny, when I wrote the book, um, you know, my editor, beat the crap out of it, which, you know, they, I think Hemingway is quoted as saying, um, you know, the, the first draft of anything is shit. And mm -hmm. mine was too. But um, I literally, I had a thing in there about, um, wouldn't it be funny if dating sites, you know, if you had to go on a dating site that uh, the, the person needed to reveal their top three flaws, mm -hmm. you know, just to help the person predict what their experience is going to be like. I thought that would be funny. The editor hacked that out. She thought it was funny. funny. I think that would be amazing. <laughs> now, would anyone be truthful about it? <laughs> exactly. Uh, maybe if, yeah, the, the uh, you know, and I think there was one where you could actually review the person that you dated and oh, have it on there. And that was, I think that got shot down really quick. I could but, imagine uh, that would be crazy. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so in terms of the messaging, you know, the, one of the recommendations I had was just like you said, if it's revenue growth, you know, those are going to be precious opportunities. If you're helping them to identify a precious revenue opportunity, that's one thing, but, but if it's growth oriented, definitely cut it out, you know, saving and preserving cash, yes. I think is king doing more with less. So how can they get more out of the resources they have or the processes they're doing so that they can do more with less because they will likely have less and then reducing risk as those three kind of value buttons to hit on, I think are going to be important in the retooling of the messaging. Um, benefits. So you've spoken a little bit about some of the benefits that you saw from implementing the transparency shift and approaching it with a flossom attitude. Mm -hmm. what, what exactly were the benefits? Were you able to quantify those when you were um, at power reviews yeah. or as part of the research? When well, yeah, and started? I'm out on the, the road, you know, doing a lot of speaking and workshops mm -hmm. for companies and, and the benefits are not only there, but um, there, there's a piece that I call transparent negotiating. Mm -hmm. and, and that's where there's been even more shocking um, you know, benefits from. And so uh, I'll, I'll tell you two quick stories. Um, you know, the first one, you know, we mentioned potentially a B2B example of leading with transparency. Yep. And it was that instance where um, I was in New York and we had gotten a lead from a great apparel manufacturer. And um, I, I happened to be in New York and that's where they were headquartered. So I pinged my head of sales back who had texted me saying, hey, this lead came in. And I was like, oh, they're in New York. Hey, can you hit up their, their executive? It was their head of e-commerce and see if he's available for coffee. Like I've got a couple hours open. And so they did. And apparently wires must have crossed because uh, the guy said, yes. I went to their offices, brought, they brought me in. As soon as I walked into his office, he told me where to plug in my laptop to be able to do my presentation. <laughs> and uh, seven chairs rolled in as the whole team came in. Oh my goodness. And I'm thinking, Gosh, I, I thought we were having coffee. Like, what happened? Yeah. And, and this guy came right at me. Uh, very in like, New, York New York style, very it, direct. It, yeah. yep. it, very, there was no small talk. And he said, Todd, we had your competitor in. We've got you in. How are you better? And you could see, like, the whole room, the other, you know, him plus the other seven. All It was almost like their arms were up. Like, all right, here comes the sales pitch. And so I thought, I got nothing to lose. I'm going to try it. And uh, so I said, hey, can I start by telling you how they're better than us? Because they just released something specific to the apparel uh, space 
that not only do we not have, but we hadn't even contemplated it. So it's not even on our roadmap. And they all looked at me like I was insane, but they were like, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so, why not? Yeah, and so, you know, we're in the review space. They, they had this like ad retargeting thing. Okay. Uh, and it, it doesn't really matter what it does, but it was kind of, it was not directly correlated with reviews. And, but I explained it, I was selling basically as though I was the competitor. Here's what it does. Their first customer is Gap, which is in the apparel space. Um, and you know, here's what it's designed to do. Yep. And so if that's going to be important, I'll save you and I'll save us a ton of time. Mm-hmm. And so they ended up discussing it for a minute. Then they looked at me and they're like, yeah, why would we get ad retargeting from a reviews provider? Like, aren't there companies yeah. really good at that? Yeah. Like, hey, that, that's not my call. Like, that's your call. Yep. And uh, they ended up, we had we ended up digging in for 10 more minutes about what we were good at, you know, our kind of our Ikea, modern Scandinavian design furniture piece. Mm -hmm. The head of e-commerce, again, this has never happened to me. He kicked me, it kicked everybody else out of the office. So it was just me and him. And then he grabbed his budget, opened it up and said, can you hit that number? Yeah. And um, then within 10 days, they called and said, Hey, we're not going to do the RFP or the dog and pony, you know, presentation. We've decided to go with you. Talk about an accelerated sales cycle. Yes. That's amazing. And, yeah. and so like while there's, there isn't hard and fast average metrics, a, a deal of this size with that type of company would have taken six months. Mm-hmm. It took less than two weeks for them to come to a decision. And then of course we still had the four weeks of the uh, T's and C's ping pong match. But so we got the deal done in six weeks and what normally would have been six months. And so they kind of like the quick summary of that is that, you'll see that when you reduce the homework the buyer has to do and help them predict their experience, you know, not only will your sales cycle speed up dramatically, but your win rates are going to go up because you are going to qualify in or out deals a lot faster. Mm -hmm. So if it turned out that they needed that ad retargeting and that was going to be really important, I want to know now versus waiting until I've invested my team and in flights and all that and find out, in two months that we lost because they decided that they needed that. Um, and so you end up with better qualified deals. And then the, the funny end to that is that head of e-commerce, when he, he called me personally to tell me they were going with us and joked about the fact that the competitor, when they found out, immediately went into a hard pitch about ad retargeting. And it was too late. Yeah. Right? So we under Yeah, you would already frame that out of the picture completely, exactly. right? Yeah. Yeah. And so... So those are the benefits at its core. Um, Now on the negotiation side, Mm -hmm. this is an interesting piece that I stumbled on about 12 years ago during the last downturn, as a matter of fact, that um, I I always felt it was strange that um, we needed almost a different personality to negotiate than we do to sell. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, sales is about the trust building and being a Sherpa to the buyer through their journey. And the negotiation is about lying to them. And about, uh, you know, starting with extreme positions and giving them the, the impression that they're in control when you're in, like all that crap, right? It's yeah. like, you said yes, now I'm going to lie to you. And so I had stumbled on this idea of what's basically cards face up negotiating. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're in SaaS technology, it's best, but it actually works with everything. I, I used it to help myself buy a car. But it, it's basically saying, hey, listen, there's four things that matter to us as an organization, Mr. or Mrs. Customer. You know, we care about volume, so how much you buy, timing of cash, which is how fast you pay, length of commitment, which is how long you commit, and t- 
timing of the deal, which is when you sign. Mm -hmm. And when they ask for the discount, you say, instead of saying no or saying we can go halfway and you play ping pong, you say, hey, let's go through those four and hopefully we can help you get there. Commit to more volume. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to do that. Um, you know, accelerate cash payments. We'll pay you in the form of a discount to do that. Lengthen your commitment. We'll pay you in the form of a discount. Or help us forecast our business. Let's align around timing and I'll pay you to hold to it. And what that's where there's some serious data. Uh, some of the customers that I've been teaching, one just told me that um, they attribute uh, seven figures worth of reduced discounting uh, to just the transparent negotiating. Yep. And, and part of it is building trust to the goal line, but you also allow customers to negotiate their own deals and you're no longer in the business of discount charity that you're getting something of value for every dollar you give away. Yep, for every dollar in return, they're trading off on volume, payment timing, length, and forecast. Yeah, and right now, companies, especially if you're if you got current customers and you're going through renewals, companies are willing to trade terms for dollars. Mm -hmm. So if if it doesn't give you too much heartache, you know, during a renewal, get a customer to renew for three years instead of one if they need a little bit of break on the price. There's value yeah. to you. Um, you know, get them to accelerate payment. If they're paying monthly, get them to pay annually. You know, there, there's things you can do there that are going to help your customers hand help you and you're not going to be in this discount as charity game anymore. Exactly. And timing of payment, especially for a lot of these companies that are looking to punch through the other yeah. side by preserving cash could be important as well. So get that three-year term, but um, maybe delay that they don't have to pay you for six months or eight months if you can handle it. Uh, those payment terms mean a lot to these companies that are trying to manage cash flow. Exactly. Yeah, the, the, the levers go both ways. You know, a customer needs to pay slower. Well, you know, maybe you can trade something. Um, you know, maybe you can trade a longer commitment for that or trade the timing or trade volume, get them to buy a little bit more and hold off. Uh, you know, they, they go both ways. But that transparent approach, like I said, I stumbled upon it, but it started working. And we uh, we rolled it out to exact target. Uh, during the heyday and the results were magic did it at power reviews and, and now I'm teaching it and you know the, uh, the the benefit to that one is not only you know better deals and better valuable deals but now much more predictable deals too it's one that I'm going to be sure to implement within our organization Todd definitely awesome. so what's the one piece of advice you want to leave the evolver audience with today well I at its core you know, imperfection sells better than perfection. And I think we need to embrace that not only because the brain science tells us to, but also because the proliferation of reviews and feedback and everything we do by an experience means that we have to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. And my gosh, right now, we've got to make it easier for our buyers to buy, to remove friction from the process. And if you're helping that customer predict by not only providing them with the pros, but also the cons of, of working with you, you're, you're hitting all three of those. So imperfection sells better than perfection. Transparency sells better than perfection. And, and embrace, as Tyra Banks would say, uh, your, your product and services flossomeness, uh, because I think that's going to help you out quite a bit. Absolutely. Be your authentic self and embrace the flaws. How can exactly. folks, Todd, find and reach you online? 
Yeah, I'm I'm everywhere uh, right now, which has been so much fun. I, when when the book came out, I thought there was a 50-50 chance that it wouldn't be great uh, because I'd never written before, and mm -hmm. I'm just I'm so proud of how it's turned out. So obviously, you can get the book on anywhere books are sold online. Uh, unfortunately, the bookstores are not open right now. But uh, yeah, I mean, I'm on on LinkedIn. I share a, quite a bit there. Uh, I do share on Twitter, and then you can just go to transparencysale.com for more info or to uh, sign up for the blog. The Transparency Sale is the book available on Amazon and other uh, bookstores. Todd Capone, thank you so much. This was so valuable. I know I learned a lot and I think the Volvers did as well. Thank you again. Thanks for having me. That was fun.